Well, good morning, everyone. It is a good morning. So when I was a kid, I really enjoyed uh, puzzle books of any variety and uh, had a little strategy that I would employ when it comes to solving complicated mazes. What I would typically do is just try to visually look at the maze and find the path that I thought would read to the end before I would ever put a pen to paper. But very often, if you've done that before, you realize that what you thought was a clear path ended up as a dead end, and you had to backtrack and then find another way. Well, I tell you that little story because I believe that's a little bit like what we see happening in Ecclesiastes with Solomon. He's looking for answers in a very broken and confusing world. And just when he thinks he's found the right path, guess what? another dead end. In fact, the most troubling obstacle he encounters is death itself. For example, at one point he decides that, that wisdom would be a worthy pursuit, and so he heads down that path and then realizes at the end that both the wise man and the fool both eventually die. No matter what their life looked like, they have the, the same end, and he says, this is vanity. It's like chasing after the wind. What's the purpose? See, the reality of death became a a barrier for Solomon understanding the meaning of life. It would be like trying to solve a maze that doesn't actually have a way out. Where instead of a series of paths, you see all of them leading to just another dead end. Now, if that's true, can you imagine and understand at least why Solomon is frustrated in his pursuits? If everything keeps leading to yet another dead end, doesn't it now make sense why he would conclude, this is vanity. This is vanity of vanities. It's meaningless. I don't understand the purpose. Well, this morning, Solomon will continue his attempts to solve the puzzle. And I want you to know right up front, he's going to find some more dead ends. But somewhere along the way, in his exasperation, he begins, as he's done periodically, to look beyond himself. He's trying to to manage life, but in a moment of sanity, if you will, he realizes that he might control a lot of things, but there's one thing he can't control. He can't control his future. And so instead of trying to figure out what's happening in the moment, maybe he needs to, to consider for a moment the work of God. Maybe there's some answers there that he just can't discover on his own. So that's what we're going to look at together. And before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that we do so humbly. Pray that each of us have a very teachable heart. A heart that is willing to learn, willing to grow, willing to be challenged, maybe willing to be rebuked, just willing to be on the receiving end of the truth of your word in ways that might impact our lives to greater intimacy with you for deeper relationships with one another. Would you just do a work in our hearts this morning, Lord, through the power of your word? That is our prayer. And we pray this. In your name, amen. 
I need you to know right up front that we're going to cover a lot of territory this morning. And the reason is, is because I didn't want to leave you where I had originally planned to to finish up this morning. Uh, Solomon finishes chapter 6 where we were going to end this morning uh, with the question, who can tell a man what comes after life in this world? It's a great question, and I didn't want to just leave you there. I wanted you to see how he begins to unpack where that might lead us when we start to ask that kind of a question. So hang with me as we go through this together. Let's begin in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 1, Solomon says, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. So this is the first of three dead ends that Solomon is going to run into this morning. Here he identifies a man who's highly successful. He has riches and honor, but in the end, he's unsatisfied. He gets what he wants, but it's, as we've learned before, it's just not enough. And I want you to notice that he's trying to satisfy his soul. That word is mentioned three times in chapter 6. In verse 2, it says, his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. I think in In part, at least, Solomon is telling us this story as a validation of his own experience. Because you'll remember, back in chapter 2, he said that, I did not withhold anything that my heart desired. Like this man, Solomon, too, was very accomplished. He was very honored. People came to see him because they were so impressed with him. But at the end of the day, like this man, he was completely unsatisfied. Whatever he had gained, he realized that he would eventually lose in the end. The same is true in this example. And here, Solomon calls it a severe affliction. It's like an incurable disease that somehow infects the heart of all mankind. It's trying to satisfy our soul, in this case, with worldly wealth. And guess what? It is just another dead end. Look at how he continues in verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they may be, but his, there's the word again, his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he, for it comes in futility and goes out in obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun, and it never knows anything. It's better off. Than he. The first example was a path that was leading to wealth. The second is a path leading to blessing. In the ancient world, a family was the greatest blessing that a man could possibly have. That's why you often read when someone was barren, unable to have children, they were considered to be cursed by God. A family that had lots of kids was an evidence for them of God's abundant blessing. So here in this example is a man who has a hundred kids. Now, this is a scenario. He says, if there was a man, if, if, if you could have a hundred kids, in other words, 
If you were blessed beyond measure, he would go on and say, your soul would still not be satisfied. And this outcome would have been very surprising to that ancient audience. There was nothing greater than the blessing of family, but Solomon is saying it's still not enough to satisfy your soul. And to make matters worse, when this man has died, he was completely forgotten. He had a hundred kids and yet still didn't have a, a decent burial. Perhaps they too were trying to satisfy their souls. Perhaps they had been infected by that incurable disease of selfish desire. We, we don't know exactly what the case may be, but whatever it is, a life of blessing, however rich that blessing may be, in the end, is just another dead end. Look at how he continues in verse 6. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, does not all that go to one place? All the man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. For whatever advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? What the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility and striving after the wind. It kind of reminds me of that phrase if you're a Star Trek fan when, when Spock says, live long and prosper, right? Well, th this is the idea here. Here's a man who's going to live 2,000 years. The idea is that if you want to get more out of life, this, then just live a, a really Long life, that's where the answer is. Well, this man's going to test that theory. But like the other two examples, he also runs into just another dead end. His life was filled with good things, but it says things that he never fully enjoyed. So whether it's an abundance of wealth, whether it's a, an abundance of blessing, whether it's a, a long and pr prosperous life, you can still come out empty on the other side. Because the soul just isn't satisfied, even by an abundance of good things. Now, that's a sobering thought, isn't it? Your soul is not satisfied, even by an abundance of good things. He goes on in verse 9 and says, What the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. And I think his point here is that at least the eyes can enjoy what is happening in a moment. The soul looks beyond the moment and is always longing for something more. Look at how he continues in verse 10. Whatever exists has already been named, and it's known what man is. For he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. For there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his feudal life? He will spend them like a shadow. Here's the question. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Solomon begins by essentially saying, look, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. I'm just looking at it from a hundred different angles, but they all have the same conclusion. In fact, no man is strong enough to change what every man experiences. And the fact of the matter is, the smarter you think you are, the more foolish you will become. Because in the end, life is like a shadow. 
It's here. And then it's gone. So Solomon closes with that question. Well, then what's the point? Who, who can tell a man what comes after this life in, the wor- in this world if this world is all there is? In other words, is this just a maze with lots of dead ends but not a single way of escape? Because if that's true, Solomon's right. It's vanity. Vanity of vanities. Everything is vanities. If life is a series of dead ends with no way of escape, then it's meaningless. So let's see how he, with that understanding, begins to find a different way. Turn to chapter 7, verse 1 now, and let's see how he continues. He says in verse 1, A good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Because that is the end of every man. And the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of the fool is in the house of pleasure. Now, now some look at chapter 7 and say that, that Solomon has changed directions on us. I don't believe that's the case. I think it's directly tied to what he just said in chapter 6. I think he's still in his pursuit of searching for answers and looking for meaning. And since death is that undeniable obstacle, Solomon is looking at that reality and saying, well, okay, then what can death teach us about life? That's what he's trying to answer here. What can death, that unavoidable reality, what can it actually teach us about how to live? He begins by saying, a life of good character is better than a good cologne. And trust me, he's not talking about Ralph Lauren here, all right? I believe what he's talking about is burial spices, and I believe that because it fits into the context here. In ancient times, corpses were anointed with ointments and spices before the body was placed inside of a tomb. So Solomon is saying that the aroma of how you live is more important than the spices and the ointments at your burial. And we know that's true. Just think about the last funeral you went to. When somebody stood up there and talked, what did they spend a lot of time talking about? The life that that person lived, right? You're learning about their story. You're learning about their life. You're learning about all they they did that was significant in the lives of those who knew them and, and loved them. I recently went to Doug Kennedy's dad's funeral, Carl, a man that I knew, but I didn't know near as well as I did until after the funeral because I was so blessed to hear each of Carl's kids get up and talk about their dad. I watched all the the pictures that were before, and when it was all said and done, I thought, man, that was a life well lived. In fact, it challenged me. It challenged me to live that same kind of life of humble service. Solomon is essentially saying this. You can learn more from one funeral than a lifetime of parties. Did you get that? You can learn more from going to one funeral than going to a lifetime of parties. 
The fool is the one who is just living for the moment. The wise man is the one who looks at every single moment to see what really, really matters in the end. That's why verse 3 says that even when the face is sad, the heart is still happy. I saw that at Doug's dad's funeral. I saw people who loved him, who grieved for his life, but that, that it was gone but yet there was a great joy in the life that he had lived and the experience that they'd had with him. Their face was sad, but their heart was happy. Here's another thing. I saw at Mr. Corny's funeral. I saw the very same thing. I saw it at Jan Whitaker's funeral. I saw it at Chuck's funeral. I saw it at so many funerals of people within this body, those whose hearts were, were their faces were sad, but their hearts were happy. Why? Because we were rejoicing in a life well lived. And that's Solomon's point here. Look at verse 5. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of a thorn bush under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool, and this too is futility. Solomon's carrying the same thought forward. He's saying, look, you can't live a life of good character. There will not be a, a pleasing aroma to how you live if you're unwilling to receive correction. I've said it before. I, I still believe it's true that perhaps the greatest quality that we can ascribe to in our lifetime is a teachable heart, a humble and teachable heart. Now, most prefer to be around people who sing their praises, but that's what Solomon is calling the song. Fools, we need people who, who love us enough to speak truth into our lives. People who are willing to give guidance because they have our highest good in mind. The wise man cultivates a teachable heart. The fool is offended by correction. They'd rather laugh it off, make excuses, pretend it never happened than to confront the truth. But you cannot live a meaningful life unless you're willing to receive correction. Good character is the result of a teachable heart. Look at how he continues in verse 7. For oppression makes a wise man mad and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit or pride. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why is it the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. He didn't want you to be surprised. Because if you think this life is going to be easy... You're in for a lot of heartache, and it will literally drive you crazy. That's what he's saying. It'll drive you to madness. This world will have trouble. And if you think it's easy, it will drive you crazy. Either that, or you'll look for an easy way out, and you'll compromise by doing something against what you know is right. Solomon says patience and self-control is critical for making wise decisions. For, for example, it's simply not wise to say what's ever on your mind, okay? If you've ever heard anybody say, I just got to say what's on my mind. Well, you know what? You might not want to do that. 
okay? Because there's an important self-discipline of controlling your tongue. Foolish anger is what happens when things don't go your way. It's the frustration you feel. It's the, the words you speak when, when you're disappointed in others. Or sometimes when you're disappointed in yourself. The best way to avoid that anger is to manage your expectations and leave room for lots and lots of grace. Keep your focus on what can be. And don't get stuck in what has been or what should be. Did you hear that? Keep your focus on what can be. And don't get stuck on what has been or what should be. Because here's the reality. You're going to make mistakes. And others are going to make mistakes. And so you got to leave a lot of room for grace. So have a teachable heart. Be patient with one another and realize, look, we're all a work in progress. Look at how he continues in verse 11. Wisdom, along with an inheritance, is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Solomon is looking at wisdom along with an inheritance, both things that you can pass down and influence future generations with. He's found that wisdom is something that you gain when you look at life backwards, when you live with the end in mind. Again, he's looking at the reality of death and he's asking the question, what does death teach us about how to live? And so he's unpacking about what some of that looks like. That kind of wisdom leads to, as he's described, a life of integrity, a life of humility, a life of patience, a life that doesn't just live for the moment, but realizes the importance of making every moment meaningful. It's marked by gratitude instead of greed, peace instead of anger. It considers how to give instead of always thinking about ways to gain. Ultimately, wisdom is what leads you to God. Look at how he continues in verse 13. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent in the day of prosperity? Be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Wisdom ultimately leads you to the work of God. This is the place that I wanted us to make sure we came to this morning. Because here's where Solomon kind of sets aside his uh, endless pursuits of dead ends and says, well, wait a second, maybe there's something better. I, Solomon, I, Todd, I, Doug, clearly can't make what is crooked straight. I can't. But maybe he can. After all, we all need God, whether we live in adversity or prosperity, because we will not be able to find the meaning of life apart from Him. I want you to listen to this. God is the only path that does not lead to a dead end. Okay, that's why we need to stop and think outside of ourselves and consider the work of God, because the work of God is the only path that does not lead to just another dead end. 
Remember, chapter 6 ended with the question, who can tell a man what is beyond this life? And in some ways, here in verse 14, Solomon answers it. He says, no man can discover what will be after him. In other words, you cannot find a way apart from finding God. That's why he says, consider the work of God because you will not figure it out on your own. Wisdom might help you navigate life, but your future is ultimately in God's hands. And and I realize something here. That's either really good news or really bad news, depending on what you believe about God. It's really bad news if you believe that God is distant and uninvolved. It's really bad news if you believe that God has left you on your own to figure this out. Running into all these dead ends as Solomon has described them. The really good news is, he hasn't. He wants to show you the way. And there's a passage in the New Testament that I I believe helps unpack this for us. So if you will, turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew 19, and look down at verse 16 with me. Matthew 19, verse 16. says, And someone came to him and said, Teacher, speaking to Jesus, What good things shall I do that I might obtain eternal life? So this is perfect. Because here we have a man addressing Solomon's question. He wants to know about life beyond the limits of this world. That's the question he's asking. And that's where Solomon left us. Who knows what's after this world? Well, this man is asking the same question to the one who has the answer. So I think it's really important to understand what Jesus has to say. He's asking, what is it? How do I have eternal life? What is life beyond the limits of this world? And look at how Jesus answers in verse 17. He said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, well, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear fault witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept. What am I still missing? Jesus begins by kind of hinting at the answer by describing uh, that it's not about good deeds. It's more about a good God. But he goes on to say, look, if you're, if you're looking for a, an answer, then follow the commandments and they will lead you in the right direction. Well, the man clearly was a religious man. This is good news to him. He says, perfect. I love that idea. Which ones precisely? And Jesus gives him a list, obviously not a complete list. In fact, I think he gives him a list of commandments he knows the man would have followed because these are big ones, right? Don't commit murder. Perfect. Haven't killed anyone, right? Don't commit adultery. And I think the man looked at that list and said, great, I've done all those. But then he says something very interesting. Having kept all those commandments, he says, what am I still missing? Why would he ask that question? Here's a man who's done all the right things, but his soul is still not satisfied. He's checked all the boxes, but his life's still empty. He's been diligent in his efforts, but they haven't given him peace. Here's a man, not unlike Solomon, who's found another dead end. 
So look at what Jesus says in verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you wish to complete, be complete, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Ah. So now we get to the heart of the issue. And I believe Jesus knew the heart of the issue all along, which is why he answered the way he did. The man is wealthy. He has all the world could offer him. He was grieved because he could not let go of what he had in order to receive what Jesus was giving him. He wanted eternal life. He just didn't want to let go of anything he had right now. Listen to how Jesus explains what happens in verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can possibly be saved. Now, I want you to know that the eye of the needle, as I understand it here in this passage, is not a small opening that a camel has to crouch through. It is literally, in the original language, the eye on the end of a needle, which is why the disciples were so astonished. And they asked the question, well, if that's the case, forget the rich man. How can anyone be saved? Because that's absolutely impossible. Large animal, small hole, not going to happen. Right? Jesus knows that. Look at what he says in verse 26. And looking at them, Jesus said, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Jesus agrees with the disciples. He says, you're right. From man's perspective, there is no way. With people, it is impossible. There is nothing you can do to enter the kingdom of God on your own. Eternal life is not something you achieve. It's something you receive. It's a redemptive work of God. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 11, it says that God has given us eternal life, and that life is in His Son. And he who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son does not have life. Without Jesus Christ, don't miss this, please. Without Jesus Christ, you will spend your lifetime running in to dead ends. Without Jesus Christ, life is a series of dead ends. Complete surrender is the only way of escape. Jesus told the rich man, you have to give up everything and then follow me. And I believe what was true for the rich man is true for every man, including every man and woman in this room. See, Jesus didn't just die for you. He's called you to die with him. What does Paul say? For I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A life lived by faith is the belief in God's kingdom promises. It's far more valuable 
than any worldly desire. So much so you'd be willing to set it all aside if it meant leaving it in order to follow him. It's a life that's reoriented from a selfish gain to a humble service, from temporary pleasure to eternal life. If you want to find an escape from the futility of this world, then consider the work of God. Go where Solomon is taking us. If you want to find an escape from the futility of this world, then consider the work of God. And more specifically, I would urge you to consider the work of God being put on display on the cross. Because the cross is the only way the barrier of sin can be removed. That's the obstacle you cannot overcome on your own. Through the cross, Jesus made a way to eternal life. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. John, at the end of his gospel, after talking about the life and ministry of Jesus, everything he would possibly want you to know, he says, look, I've told you as much as I can, even though it's not everything that happened, but what I did tell you, I've shared with you, I've written, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. So in the words of Solomon, let me urge you, consider the work of God. It's a passage that we learned this week in a discipleship group, Psalm 103, chapter 2, or Psalm 103, verse 2 uh, through 5. It says, bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who rescues your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And I'm telling you, taste and see that the Lord is good. And blessed are those who find refuge in Him. There is no better place in life than when your life is in His hands. And that's what Solomon wants you to understand. So, if you don't know Christ, let me urge you this morning to set aside all that has been going on, and as Solomon has urged each of us, consider the work of God. Consider the work of God on the cross on your behalf. His blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Consider the work of God. And for those of us who do know Christ, I think the call is still the same. Consider the work of God, especially in light of Jesus' uh, interview with the rich young ruler. Because I think sometimes, even though we make a decision to follow Christ, there are still things that we hold on to in this world. And when Jesus said, let go of everything, he meant let go of everything. So that the only thing you carry are the things that he then gives to you. And so sometimes you need to stop where you're at, consider the work of God, and ask yourself, am I still carrying things like bitterness, things like anger, things like discouragement, 
did God give you those things to carry or do you embrace them on your own? Think about things that may be sin that easily entangles you, things that we easily make excuses for. Remember, the fool is the one who's unwilling to receive instruction. And sometimes we need people to speak the truth into our lives and tell us, look, that's not right. And we need to be able to set aside the sin that so easily entangles us and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. So some of us need to let go of some things in order to embrace some things. So I think no matter where you are in life right now, either as a believer or as a Christian, there are things that we can take away when you consider the work of God. And consider if, if you are living the way he wants you to in order to fully experience all he's done for you. And listen, this is not a have to. This is not a make you feel guilty sort of thing. I'm telling you this because he forgives all your iniquities. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good. That's what we want you to experience. That's what I want to experience. And so let me urge you to consider the work of God because that's the offer he's making. He wants that to be your experience, for you to taste and see that the Lord is good and that you're blessed when you take refuge in him. Live with the end in mind. We're all going to come to the same end. So what does that end teach us about how to live our lives, right? Praise God that this world is not just a series of dead ends that Jesus has made a way and that eternal life is possible through faith and trust in him. So let's sing about that together as we finish up this morning. So stand if you will. So let me say one thing in closing before I make a quick introduction and we pray together. Um, I want to be careful and be clear that the message of what we read this morning and particularly the conversation that Jesus had. I want to be clear that you don't hear me say there's something you have to do. I want you to hear me say that surrender is the path to freedom. And I believe that any one of us in any given situation are carrying things that were never ours to hold. And that's why Jesus said, come to me, you, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so I'm encouraging you as we think about how we're living our lives, to see if there are things that we are holding on to that we really need to let go of. Simply because Jesus has something better for you. Something more refreshing, rewarding, fulfilling in Him. And so, please understand my heart, and I want that to be so clear, because I want you to live in the grace and mercy of Christ. That's the offer.